Well, it's good to be back. Uh, we missed you, and uh, we're glad to be here. So today I'm preaching about money. Oh, for crying out loud, is he really? Uh, I had intended to preach on this topic uh, last Sunday, or actually the Sunday of the budget meeting. And, and when I planned this and everything, we didn't know exactly what Sunday the budget meeting would be. Uh, but anyway, so I decided I would go ahead and preach this the week after. I make no apology, uh, not to Christians, not to non-Christians, not to church members or those who are not members of this church. Um, you might say, well, why is that? Uh, isn't this a sensitive topic? And the answer is yes, it is a very sensitive topic, and I'll tell you why. Because whenever you preach about people's idols, it's sensitive. And we're Americans. And money, for many of us, is one of the idols that we, um, we deal with on a regular basis. Um, also, somebody challenged me many, many, many years ago, decades ago now. He said to me, he said, Alan, said, go through the Bible and tear out every page that has anything to do with money and see how much is left. Oh, not much. <laughs> not much. Um, and finally, I don't apologize uh, to preach about money because giving sacrificially is what the gospel tells us to do. Uh, that's why my topic is what it, uh, the title rather, uh, doing what the gospel tells us to do, give sacrificially. Let me give you a little background before I read it so you will have a little bit of better understanding. Um, when um, in chapter 8 of 2 Corinthians when Paul is beginning to talk about the churches of Macedonia, uh, some of you may know a little bit about the geography of that area, but um, if we were looking at a map and Corinth is here, Athens is here, and that's in the south of Greece, and that's Achaia, A-C-H-A-I-A. That's Achaia in the south of Greece. In the north, there's Macedonia. So he's going to start talking to the Christians at Corinth about what the churches in Macedonia had done. Now, in those days, as today, actually four years ago today, Sally, we were in uh, Greece. I was lecturing at the Greek Bible College, and, um, which is in Athens, or the outskirts of Athens. And, and you would say today, well, Athens and Corinth, that's, the, uh, that's where the wealth is. Uh, that's where the center of the business activities are. Macedonia, well, not so much. Um, but there were a lot of fine Christians uh, from Macedonia, even four years ago. Lots of the people we met that were believers had grown up up that way and had, for one reason or another, come to the south. So he's, he's writing to the Corinthians, which it was a seaport economic center, a place of great wealth, and he's using the Macedonians as an illustration, uh, and, and they're not people of particularly great wealth, as we shall see. So let me remind you that we believe the Bible is the Word of God written, the only infallible rule of faith and practice. And then um, let me lead us in prayer, and we will read and look at the Word. Father God, help us now to understand you and your ways with your people, especially, Lord, we would know the gospel better, uh, what it is and what it tells us to do. And we pray that you would use a wretched, sinful, crooked stick to show the narrow way of the Lord Jesus, and we pray in Jesus' name, amen. Sorry, I've already made a mess of this thing. 
Um, so, 2 Corinthians uh, chapter 8 at verse 1. We want you to know, brothers, about the grace of God that has been given among the churches of Macedonia. For in a severe test of affliction, their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty have overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part. For they gave according to their means, as I can testify, and beyond their means of their own free will, begging us earnestly for the favor of taking part in the relief of the saints. And this, not as we expected, but they gave themselves first to the Lord and then by the will of God to us. Accordingly, we urged Titus that as he had started, so he should complete among you this act of grace. This phrase, act of grace, will come up again. But as you excel in everything, in faith, in speech, in knowledge, in all earnestness, and in our love for you, see that you excel in this act of grace also. I say this not as a command, but to prove by the earnestness of others that your love also is genuine. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you by his poverty might become rich. And in this matter I give my judgment. This benefits you, who a year ago started not only to do this work, but also to desire to do it. So now finish doing it as well, so that your readiness in desiring it may be matched by your completing it out of what you have. For if the readiness is there, it is acceptable according to what a person has, not according to what he does not have. I do not mean that others should be eased and you burdened, but that as a matter of fairness, your abundance at the present time should supply their need, so that their abundance may supply your need, that there may be fairness. As it is written, whoever gathered much had nothing left over, and whoever gathered little had no lack. And if you would now skip down to chapter 9, verse 6. The point is this. Whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly. And whoever sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. Each one must give as he has made up his mind, not reluctantly or under compulsion. For God loves a cheerful giver. And God is able to make all grace abound to you, so that having all sufficiency in all things at all times you may abound in every good work. As it is written, he has distributed freely. He has given to the poor. His righteousness endures forever. He who supplies seed to the sower and bread for food will supply and multiply your seed for sowing and increase the harvest of your righteousness. You will be enriched in every way for all your generosity, which through us will produce thanksgiving to God. For the ministry of this service is not only supplying the needs of the saints, but is also overflowing in many thanksgivings to God. By their approval of this service, they will glorify God because of your submission flowing from your confession of the gospel of Christ and the generosity of your contribution for them and for all others. While they long for you and pray for you because of the surpassing grace of God upon us, Thanks be to God for his indescribable gift. Amen. The grass withers, the flowers will fade away, but the word of God will never fade away. 
It will abide forever and forever. There is out there today a so-called gospel that we have heard referred to as the health, wealth, and prosperity gospel. Many of you will have heard about it. Some of you may have experienced it up close and personal. It goes something like this. God wants you to be rich. That's why Jesus came. That is what He wants for you. And that's what you can expect in this life if you have enough faith. And at first glance, verse 9 of chapter 8 looks like it supports that. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though He was rich, yet for your sake He became poor, so that you by His poverty might become rich. Wow, really? But is this gospel, put gospel in quotes, I think, really true? Is it really true that God wants all Christians to have abundance of wealth, material wealth, right here, right now? I think we must dig deeper. And when we do, we see that this passage, rather than encouraging an expectation of getting or receiving, is primarily encouraging giving. Not getting, but giving. The act of grace that's mentioned twice in what we read and once in what we did not read is giving. The passage teaches us that God wants us to share our wealth for the sake of brothers and sisters in Christ who are in need. It teaches us that as we share our wealth, we increase our real wealth, our real riches rather than diminish them. In this context, the Corinthian context, um, he's talking about relief. If you look down in verse 4, begging us earnestly for the favor of taking part in the relief of the saints. Now, most scholars take this relief of the saints to be, and you can find something about this in Romans 15 at verse 31, that this relief of the saints was the the saints at Jerusalem. And that the saints at Jerusalem uh, uh, were in need, and that Paul was taking an offering uh, from several different churches, and in fact, Paul himself would later go with that offering and take it uh, to the church in Jerusalem. So it's a not so much a word-based ministry that's being supported here as a a deed-based ministry, and and it's about gathering an offering from the churches in Macedonia and the churches in Achaia and taking that, sending that uh, to the churches at Jerusalem. But again, I make no apology about this topic. God has made us, gifted us, blessed us, and caused us to live in the here and now. As it says in Deuteronomy 8, It is He who has given you the power to make wealth. In 1 Corinthians 4, what do you have that you did not receive? And the answer, of course, is nothing. We must honor Him with our wealth, whoever we are, wherever we are. That's not all that God wants of us, but it is a part, a legitimate part. And finally, I want to say before I look at my three points, this is not a play Uh, to get your money for this church or any other church or any particular ministry. Some churches tell non-Christians, don't give, don't bring your money, leave your checkbook at home or credit card. 
They don't want people to think that they're primarily after their money. And I think that's well meant, but mistaken. Because everybody, Christian and non-Christian, owes the source of their money some of their money back. And God is the source. None of us will take anything with us when we die. You know the old joke, there are no U-Hauls behind hearses. And uh, if you saw one, you would laugh and split your side. Um, So, I want to look at a report, a request, and a reason. A report, a request, and a reason. First, the report. And the report in verses 1 to 5 of uh, chapter 8 is about the grace of God through the churches of Macedonia. It says in verse 2, they gave their money in a wealth of generosity. They gave according to their means in verse 3. They gave beyond their means. They were poor. It says they were in extreme poverty. It says in verse 2, they were in the midst of much affliction. And yet it says they had an abundance of joy. So let me bake the Macedonian cake for you just a minute. Here are the ingredients. Affliction, extreme poverty, joy. Those are the ingredients you pour in this cake. And and what did you produce? Overflowing generosity. You've seen, perhaps, maybe you've done this, you know, you cook something and you put in, you forget you put in the stuff that makes it rise. And you put in twice. And you put it in the oven and you look and it's just overflowing the sides of the, of the pan. Some of you have done that. Some of, most of you have seen that, right? Well, what was the ingredient that caused it to overflow the pan, so to speak? Well, it was the joy. It was the joy in Jesus, joy in their great salvation. How did they do this? Well, verse 1 starts it. Brothers, I want you to know about the grace of God. Grace that they had received in believing the gospel and grace now that has motivated them to respond to that gospel. So they gave their money. In verse 3 it says they gave of their own free will. It says they're begging us earnestly for the favor of taking part in the release of the saints. Paul didn't have to go to the Macedonians and put the screws to them and say, you know, you really owe those people in Jerusalem a lot. Uh, After all, the gospel came through them. Uh, They were were there first. You guys are also rands out here in Macedonia. He didn't go like that. These people are begging. They're begging for some of that. It's kind of like you get a stock tip of a company that's going to just go through the roof. And you think, I I, I need some of this. I want to buy some of this. I want to invest in this. I want to get the initial public offering so that it'll just do well for me. They gave from the heart. They gave not from duty, but from desire because they felt a unity with the church at Jerusalem. Ephesians uh, chapter 4 has this wonderful phrase, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who is over all and through all and in all. And they felt that. They felt that. They're living that. They knew that God had been gracious to them in giving them Jesus and in giving them everything else and they believed that they should do unto others as God has done unto them. 
So they gave their money, they gave of their own free will. And in verse 5 it says they gave themselves. First to the Lord, then to Paul and his companions in ministry. Why is that important? Because it's easier to give your money than to give yourself, right? Have you ever had somebody come to the door soliciting the Boy Scouts or Girl Scouts or something, and uh, you're right in the middle of your favorite TV program, and it's kind of like, oh my goodness, I I like this, but I'm right in the middle of my show, and just, here, take it, so you can get back to your your show or something like that. It's much easier to give your money than to give yourself. Much easier. For most of us, that's the case. And Paul's point, of course, is, is if those poor Macedonians gave in this way, they're poor, they're more inflicted than you here at Corinth, then surely you should be generous as well. What does that say to us in Newburgh? What does that say to me? What does it say to you? It seems to me it says the same thing. It says the same thing. If people like the Macedonians can give uh, beyond their means can give in joy, can give exceedingly and abundantly, uh, then we should too. That's the report. Secondly, the request. The request is in verse 7. But as you exceed in everything, in faith, in speech, in knowledge, and in all earnestness, and in our love for you, see that you excel in this act of grace also. I say this not as a command, but to prove by earnestness of others that your love also is genuine. Paul issues a request, not a command. He could have, as an apostle of the Lord Jesus Christ, issued a command. But he wants them to prove that their love is genuine, their love to God and their love to other Christians. Uh, He wants them to give not forced, but freely. By this we know love, that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. But if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and truth. So Paul issues this request that they excel in this grace of giving, that they give in accordance, as it says in verse 12, with what they have, what they don't have, not what they don't have. This is a principle that goes all the way back to the Old Testament. Uh, You give in proportion as God has given to you. God doesn't demand or expect more than we can give, more than we have. But he wants them, verse 7 is curious, because the church at Corinth thought that it had many spiritual gifts. Uh, And he says in verse 7, look, as you excel in everything, in faith, in speech, in knowledge, in all earnestness. So he would say to them, look, you guys have space. Uh, faith, you have speech, you have knowledge, you have earnestness. You need to add to that the gift of sacrificial giving. Oh, oh. He wants them to excel in this grace. And, and so a church, this church, any church, an, an individual Christian could have lots of gifts and graces and lack some that are, are very important, that are even necessary. And so we need to not be content inappropriately with a limited number of gifts and graces. And I think we get content very easily. So he issues this request, but interestingly, (laughs) this is going to 
surprising given how much he labors the point that he's not commanding them. But in verse 10, the request becomes an imperative request. In verse 10 it says, And in this matter I give my judgment, this benefits you who a year ago started not only to do this work, but also to, to desire to do it. So now finish. The word finish is an imperative. Finish doing it. So here's what happened. So the churches uh, there in Corinth, the church in Corinth, had begun to gather uh, a gift for uh, the, the uh, relief of the Jerusalem church. And, and um, they were earnest and they started out and they petered out. And somewhere along the way during the year, this earnestness they had had just kind of faded away. And so Paul, in this part of this letter, is trying to stir them up to renew that effort. And he issues this, um, this imperative um, that, that they finish, that they complete what they had started. Now he's telling them, look, you had a desire, you had had it, and you had started, but it's waned. And I think he's just telling them and us, don't be content without sacrificial giving. As we shall see shortly, Jesus sacrificed, and we should too. Some of us can give a lot without much sacrifice, which I think is the point of the story in Luke 21 and other places about the widow who gave the two small copper coins uh, into the offering. If you want to meditate on that passage uh, sometime, the story of the widow putting in the two coins Meditate on the word more in that passage. I find it the most intriguing word in the whole passage there when Jesus says she put in more. And you meditate on, so what does more mean? And it's a very illuminating passage. So we've got a report, we've got a request, and thirdly, we've got a reason. And the reason is a reminder... It's the self-giving grace of our Lord Jesus Christ in verse 9. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you by his poverty might become rich. So this reason, this motivation, is the reminder of the gospel, the example of Jesus Christ. He was rich. He was rich. Uh, it says in John chapter 1 that he was involved in the creation of all things. He's eternally preexistent with the Father in heaven. And because he creates everything, he owns everything. He was of the same substance and equal in power and glory with the Father. Though he is rich, yet for your sake, for your sake, that was his motive, for your sake he became poor, for us. He became poor. For my sin and your sin, he became poor. Voluntarily, without ceasing to be rich, he was incarnate, he was crucified, he sacrificed himself freely and voluntarily. Talking about that in Philippians 2, it says, Who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but made himself nothing. Taking the form of a servant... Being born in the likeness of man and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death of a cross. So he's bringing out the gospel as a reminder and a reason why 
that they should continue and finish what they've started in regard to this relief offering for the church in Jerusalem. So that by his poverty, by his poverty we might become rich. The, the causative agent of our richness is the poverty of Jesus Christ, the humbling of Jesus Christ, the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. So that by his poverty, you might become rich. Rich not in dollars today or tomorrow, but rich in righteousness, rich, rich in blessing. 2 Corinthians 6, as poor, this is Paul writing, as poor yet making many rich, as having nothing yet possessing everything. Ephesians 2. So that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. Colossians 1. To them, that is the Gentiles, I like this because I'm a Gentile ethnically, to them... God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Paul is using the gospel, the self-sacrifice, the voluntary impoverishment of the Son of God to motivate the, Christ, the Corinthian Christians to give. He's reminding them of Jesus' sacrifice on their behalf. And that's for us too. We should sacrifice too in giving. An objection you might make is this. It's a good objection. Yes, but Jesus knew he would get it all back. And that's true. Jesus did know that he would get it all back. And Jesus will get it all back. But what we forget is that we do too. What do you mean? We get it all back. When? Well, I don't know. I can't answer that. But the gospel promises are that we presently are rich and we will be. Give and it will be given to you. Good measure, pressed down, shaken together, running over, will be put into your lap. For with the measure you use, it will be measured back to you. Bring the full tithes into the storehouse that there may be food in my house and thereby put me to the test, says the Lord of hosts, if I will not open the windows of heaven for you and pour down for you a blessing until there is no more need. 2 Corinthians 9 at verse 6. Whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly. Whoever sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. Let me ask you this question. Is one of the reasons you might be reaping only sparingly? Is that you're sowing only sparingly? Is it possible that that's the situation with you? I don't know. I don't know. But he's very clear. Whoever sows sparingly will reap sparingly. Whoever sows bountifully will reach bountifully. Each one must give as he's made up his mind, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. Very interesting in the Greek language, the word for cheerful is transliterated hilarious. God loves a hilarious giver. God is able to make all grace abound to you so that having all sufficiency in all things at all times, you may abound in every good work. I could go on and on. Let me give you one more. 
Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. I said there are no U-Hauls behind hearses. You can't take it with you. That's right. But you can send it on ahead. You can send it on ahead. What do you mean send it on ahead? Well, you can lay up for yourself treasures in heaven. And not the only way you do that is through sacrificial giving, but I think it's one way you do that. If you give in faith, you give motivated by the gospel, you send it on ahead. And moth and rust don't destroy it. Economic downturns don't impact it. Devaluation of currency doesn't do anything to it. It's a good investment, actually. (laughs) It's a very good investment. Well, let me bring it to a close this way. There are really several biblical motivations for giving. One of them is creation. God created me. God created everything. God in His mercy has given me some of it. God created. God owns it. That's, that's a, really a, a legitimate motivation for giving. Another one is sustenance. God sustains me. He sustains all things by the word of His power. And, and His sustenance, along with His creation, are, I think, a, a good motivation or uh, impetus to give. His commands, he does command us to give. This passage is not focused on command, but he does. Another thing, though, is the conduct of those who, like these believers in Macedonia, in using examples like that. But the highest motivation, I think, the richest, the deepest is this, it's the gospel. He was rich. Yet for our sakes, he became poor, so that we, by his poverty, might become rich. The grace of God in Jesus Christ to us should lead to the grace of God through us to other believers and other people in other ministries. What does the gospel tell us to do? Well, the gospel tells us to do many things. But one is that it tells us to give freely and voluntarily and abundantly and sacrificially. Jesus did, and we should too. He who has ears to hear, let him hear what the Spirit is saying to the church. Let us pray. Lord our God, wake us up to the eternal realities that we will take nothing with us, but that we might send it on ahead by laying up treasures in heaven. Forgive us that some of us have played the fool and we have thought and believed the lie that he who has the most toys wins. No, the gospel tells us that it's not toys that cause us to win. It's Jesus that gives the victory. Lord, I pray that your word and spirit would speak to my heart, all our hearts, that you would help us to respond to the gospel with sacrificial giving. In Christ's name, amen. Our tithes and offerings are being taken in a box in the foyer, and there are other ways to give as well. You can find those online. There are various prayers there for people in various places of spiritual need, and I would direct them to you. And then I would ask you to turn the page and please stand as we confess the Historic faith using the Apostles' Creed. Please stand if you're able.
Christian, what is it that you believe? I believe in God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and buried. He descended into hell. The third day he rose again from the dead. He ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of God, the Father Almighty. From thence he shall come to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Lord and Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. Please be seated. It is my privilege, acting as a spokesman for Jesus Christ, uh, th this is the Lord's table, and it's really Jesus uh, that invites you to his table. I speak only for him. It's not my table, it's not our table, it's his table. And I would remind you of this, uh, these words of institution from 1 Corinthians chapter 11, where writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, the Apostle Paul said, For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way also he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Amen. Friends, if you know and love the Lord Jesus Christ, if you are uh, desirous of turning from your sin and turning to Jesus, if you're a member in good standing in a branch of Christ's church that believes the gospel by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, that we're made right with God, then we welcome you to come and partake with us this, this morning. As I said, it's not our table, it's the Lord's table. If those things are not true of you, we ask you to refrain. You can remain in your seat and meditate upon the things that have been said and are being symbolized. Our prayer, our sincere prayer, is that you would soon come to Christ and then come and take this sacrament, this table, this visible reminder of the gospel with us. Let's pray together. Lord, we ask you now to set these elements apart from a common use to a sacred use, that you would not only um, um, uh, come and um, transform, that you would come and transform us from one degree of glory to another, that as, as we feed on Christ by faith, that we would be enriched and that we would grow and that the gospel and its promises would enliven and energize us to live in newness of life for you. Lord, I pray that you would be with every partaker and every person that does not partake. Lord, that you would work your work as we see a visible example, reminder of the gospel in Jesus' name, amen. 